Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down and talked to Mike Belsito. Like most product managers that I've interviewed in the past, Mike kind of accidentally stumbled on his role. <laughs> he jokes that becoming a product manager for him was probably the next step after being a failed startup founder. And while now, he's the co-founder of the Product Collective. It's an organization that puts together one of the largest product management summits in the world. It's called Industry. And what's interesting is he treats his conference as a product. And you know, this got me to thinking, what do you consider a product? Us product managers, both past and present, are probably quick to point to our favorite apps and software. But if I go out on the street and ask a random person, they think of products as purely physical items, like their favorite shoes or sunglasses or phone. But I think, you know, we can also treat experiences like we treat products, and we can manage them in similar ways. Like when you walk into a Chick-fil-A, that's an experience, a product that someone out there owns. So during this podcast, we dug into ways Mike treats industry like a product and how that affects his approach to the event. Then we sat down and we talked a little bit more broadly and said, you know, how can technology product managers learn from other types of product managers? Well, enough of my jabber. Let's kick this off. Welcome, lovers of product. Today, I am here with Mike Belsito. So you run an industry conference that's coming up in October. A lot of product managers out there have probably heard of it or, or attended. So why don't you kick this off and give us a little overview of your background? Sure. And thanks a lot for having me, Eric. I really appreciate it. It's been fun to listen to the episodes and now to be on an episode here. It's a really cool thing. So thank you for that. But yeah, I so I co-founded a company a few years back called Product Collective and we organize a conference called Industry, the Product Conference. And so we're coming up on our fourth year, or I should say the fourth edition of our, you know, what we call our global conference, which takes place in Cleveland, Ohio, coming up in October. We also have a conference that takes place every spring now in Dublin, Ireland. So that's been fun too. But yeah, Product Collective, really, we like to think of ourselves as a community for product people. Of course, we have the conferences, but year round, we love interacting with product people, and I should say fellow product people, because we look at ourselves as product people still. But, you know, we're, we have a newsletter of our own that goes out every week. We do live video Q&A chats twice a month with product leaders, and we call those industry interviews. And then we have a Slack channel where there's about 5,000 product people that every day, you know, trading ideas, best practices, getting feedback from folks, that sort of thing. So that's been a lot of fun. But for me, you know, I definitely didn't always think of myself as a product person. I will say I've spent all of my career in early stage technology startups as, you know, an early employee. I was employee number one at a company right out of business school that I was there for six years and it, it grew while I was there to, I think we had 120 employees by the time I had left, but I, I then left there to start a company of my own. So I've, I've definitely been a founder before. And then I've been an executive at a couple of companies that I did not found, but was brought in later on to help lead product. So, it, but me sort of getting into product happened by accident. And I'll never forget, I mean, coming out of a startup that I had, you know, my startup was acquired, but I was call it a fail sale. You know, we didn't quite achieve what we wanted to achieve with it. This was a company called eFuneral, but it, it was acquired. And 
I did not go with the company that purchased really became most of our assets. And so I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and, and even like where I belonged. I mean, I was asking myself, all right, if you know, you have, you start a company, it doesn't go the way that you want it to it's still an awesome experience, but like what next? I mean, I knew maybe I would start another company at some point, but for now I'm like, what am I? Am I marketing guy? Am I a biz dev guy? Am I, you know, what, what does a failed startup founder do immediately afterwards? And so I remember you became a DJ, right? I, <laughs> I'm sure this story will come out a little later. You love calling me DJ Mikey B. So we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that. But no, I did not become a DJ. That would have been very cool. Instead, I did something maybe even cooler, at least to all of us that are listening to, to product love. But, you know, I became a product person. I, I got recruited by a ticketing company to be their director of product strategy. And I first remember very clearly Googling, what does a director of product strategy do? And I, and I remember even when they offered me the role, I, rem- I wasn't talking them out of it, but I remember saying like, this sounds awesome, but I don't know if I'd be good at this. Like I didn't go to school for product management. And of course they were like, oh no, Mike, don't worry. Nobody's gone to school for product management. You'll be fine. But that's, that's what got me into product. And Really, it was sort of, you know, a product of me trying to make it look like I somewhat knew what I was doing. You know, I was just, I love learning through people. So, you know, at first I was trying to learn about product through books and podcasts and blogs, but then later on it was meeting people and, you know, asking them, well, hey, you know, how did you get started? You know, what did you do to continue learning as a product person? And ultimately I came into contact with one of my friends here who had been putting on these conferences that were local to Cleveland, Ohio. And, you know, soon enough, we started talking about putting together a product conference. And initially, we sort of had envisioned, hey, maybe, you know, people within a couple hours drive of Cleveland might think this is useful. But it turned out that even our first year in 2015, we had people from, you know, nearly half the United States, people from other countries coming in for it. And that's sort of when we realized we were onto something. And, and ultimately, you know, about a year later, that's when I stepped into Product Collective full time. And so I'm kind of an accidental product person. But then again, I feel like every product person I've met is in some way an accidental product person. I mean, I definitely think a lot of them have been accidental people. I, I think we see product management turning more from an art into a craft, if not yet a science. You're starting to see programs like Greg Gatikia runs a program over at Carnegie Mellon that offers a, a master's in product management. In fact, I had him on Product Love a few months back. Yeah. So I think we're seeing more of that. You know, Pragmatic, you know, obviously has been around forever providing training for product managers. But I, I think we're going to see more and more programs like Carnegie Mellon has that try to put more of a foundation, more of a framework in place for product managers. I think you're right. And I, and I hope that that's the case. You know, I'm trying to do... My part in that a little bit, I actually am teaching a undergraduate product management class coming up at Case Western Reserve University, which last year that was, it was actually the first undergraduate product management class that they ever offered. So of course, when you're the first, you, you know, sort of a low bar, you could kind of create it as you go. But I think it would be a great thing for everybody in product if students were exposed to it sort of much earlier in the process, at least compared to when I was exposed to product management. But I think you're right on. I think we'll see more and more of that. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's good. I think we're also starting to see the you know the evolution of a product stack, right? It used to be before that you know, as product managers with tools they used, it was like, you know, things built for other people or Excel or Word or Microsoft right. Project, right? You know, crazy stuff. But now we're starting to see more and more custom developed software for product managers. So let's talk a little bit about your industry conference. You know, what makes that special? Yeah, well, I will say, you know, when we first got started with industry, you know, we hadn't been to any other product conferences. To be fair, there really weren't any near where we live, which is, you know, Cleveland. And so in the very beginning, it was almost a selfish endeavor because we were saying, hey, if we want to get better at product, what's a way to do that? Well, let's bring some of the best product people in the world to us and we'll do it in the form of this conference that we'll put on. So really, you know, we were hoping to learn from the speakers we brought in and, and we did and, and we still do. In terms of what makes it special, I think maybe, you know, that's part of it. It's because we started this not because we were thinking to ourselves, oh, well, how can we monetize some audience that we've built? You know, which for some professional conferences, that is how it happens. You know, media company starts up and they build an audience and they figure, okay, well, we have this, you know, we have people are coming to our website. How, how else can we monetize this and create a conference? But I think our conference, you know, it started by us as product people just wanting to genuinely learn. So hopefully a lot of that shows through in the experience that we build out. It is two full days or three full days if you're actually attending the workshop. So I will say one of the things that makes it special is that the people that they come, you know, they're, they're flying into Cleveland for this. They're spending two to three full days here. It's like the people that are coming are definitely serious about buckling down and focusing on product, you know, whether it be, Hey, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to learn, but I'm also going to meet people by being out of the office. I'm going to, you know, kind of open myself up to just trying to learn some new things and just be exposed to things I might not have been exposed to before. We try to take, especially this year, you know, an interactive approach where a good part of this year's conference will be interactive where attendees are kind of choosing their own experience, especially on the second day of our conference. Included in that is, you know, for the first time we're offering these, what we're calling industry discussions where attendees actually lead the, the topics, you know, so attendees can kind of speak up and offer up ideas on topics that they'd like to lead and other attendees can join them in these small group discussions. So those are some things that we're excited about. But the thing that makes it, I think, special is that every single year, we're constantly working with our attendees, whether it be right at the conference, after the conference, because we're always not just surveying them, but actually doing attendee interviews. And we try to treat the conference like a product, right? So we are constantly adding new features, you know, like those that I just mentioned. We're sunsetting things, you know, maybe things that didn't meet the mark, you know, we're, we're eliminating those types of things. And so I think part of what makes it special is just the fact that we are treating the conference itself like a product, you know, being here in the Midwest, I will say we see people from all over, you know, it's not just people from the coasts coming. We have last year, I think it was people from 37 States and 13 U S countries came to industry. So, you know, that's a part of what makes it special too. Yet, you know, the, the speakers, and the presenters, you know, they're, they're some of the best that you can find anywhere. I mean, last year we had Jason Freed of Basecamp. You know, this year it was Scott Belsky from Adobe, Mercy Victoria Grace, formerly of Slack, even BJ Novak, who, you know, used to be an actor and writer on The Office. You know, he's coming to talk about product in a much different way, you know, kind of equating to how he's treated writing books and television scripts as a product. So those are some of the things that make it special. I mean, again, for us, 
because we're product people too, and we try to treat it like a product, our hope is every single year, it's a little bit of a different experience for people. So even if they're coming year after year, they can get some completely new things out of it. So you just mentioned something interesting and, and you write about this too, this concept that everything is a product. Can you explain that some more? Yeah. And this is something I am especially excited about the whole concept that everything is a product. And in fact, I've even given a couple talks on this concept as well. And really it's just that, I mean, it's sort of just that it's not when we as product people, especially in the software world think, yeah, I'm a product person. You know, I, I'm in product. We of course think of software. Of course, when most people, you know, when you're asking them on the street and we mention product, they're thinking of physical products. But the thing is, services, you know, the way somebody experiences something, those are products. I remember being at industry last year and one of the first people, one of the first attendees I kind of came into contact with, she was from Chick-fil-A. And I remember asking her, oh, that's, it's awesome. So like this, you know, what do you work on? Are you on the website of things? And she's like, no, the restaurant experience. Like when you walk into Chick-fil-A, that's my product, you know, and that's what I'm here is to, you know, take learnings from other people within the software side and sort of incorporate it into what I do. My wife, my wife is the VP of destination development for Destination Cleveland, which is the Convention and Visitors Bureau in Cleveland. So she would want me to tell you to visit Cleveland. It's a great place to be. And of course, I believe that too. But anyway, her product is Cleveland. Her product is the visitor experience that people have in Cleveland. And when I think of, when I meet all these people and I think of the fact that like they have these things that they are products too. And I think about the way that they can be managed, you know, just like we manage software and we're constantly in front of customers. We're trying to create experiments and MVPs that then get iterated upon. And ultimately they're supposed to solve problems for our customers. That attendee from Chick-fil-A who manages the restaurant experience, my wife who runs, you know, again, destination development for Cleveland's Convention Visitors Bureau, they're doing the same thing. And I think my big takeaway from all of it is, is not necessarily that there's a one single way to manage product or, you know, hey, the folks that are in software, we're doing it better than the folks that are outside of software, vice versa. It's just that we can all learn from each other. I think when I started talking to people, especially outside of product and started digging in with them on, on how they manage whatever it is that they're managing when it comes to a product, every single conversation I've had there's been something that I've jotted down that I knew that I could use in what I do. And, you know, of course for us, you know, we're our main product is conference. It's a non-tech product, but I think we've been able to grow industry because of our experience in tech products. And, you know, the way that we've evolved that has come from our experience in tech products. So again, I just think the big takeaway is that we can all learn so much from each other, regardless of whether or all we're working on products that are similar to each other or not. So you mentioned something pretty interesting there. You talked about what you've learned from people outside of tech. So give us some examples. What can tech people learn? And obviously there's a lot they could learn, but give us some examples of what tech people can learn from people managing products outside of tech or some examples of things you've learned. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really comes to mind, and this is especially with people that have physical products or especially like services or experiences what I found is oftentimes they really, really focus on trying to see their customer use their product. And oftentimes they are with their customers or monitoring their customers as they use their product. And like as an example, you know, some of these physical product companies, they'll have focus groups and whether focus groups are the right avenue, it's still like they're trying to observe 
customers using their product. Oftentimes with experiences, again, I go back to like the Convention and Visitors Bureau, like even in a place like Cleveland, they go to events where their customers will be visitors and they're watching visitors. They're talking to those visitors. So I think, you know, of course, those of us that manage tech products, we all know talking to users, getting in front of users, like this is a super important thing. But I also know that sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's easy to get in the habit of like, ah, gosh, I have all these requests coming in from so many different people and the roadmap needs to get done. And it's very easy to go through a certain period of time and not necessarily be sitting alongside a customer or being with a customer just for the purpose of watching, observing. So I, that's one of the things I think, you know, maybe that we can all learn from. And it, I think if we as tech product people spent time with folks that were not managing tech products, but maybe some other different kinds of products, we might see that that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe that's just a good reminder for us that we can do more there. I, know I also think about like people like Bob Mesta, who, you know, he he's spoken at industry in the past, actually a couple of times um, in the United States and in Europe. But, you know, he's one of the co-architects of the jobs to be done framework. And jobs to be done is it's such a I'll call it kind of like a hot concept, you know, within the world of tech products. And there's a lot of people, a lot of big believers in it. I know Intercom's a company that's a big believer in the whole jobs to be done approach. But when you hear Bob, usually when you hear him talk about examples, whether listening on a podcast or, you know, you hear him at a conference, oftentimes he brings up examples of non-tech products. You know, so I've heard him talk about people buying mattresses. I've heard him talk about buying cell phones. And again, those concepts, you know, the whole jobs to be done concept, the idea is those products aren't just products we're buying at random. We are basically hiring those products to do a job for us. So again, when I see things like that, it's just a reminder that if those parallels can be drawn from, you know, non-tech to tech for something like jobs to be done, which is such a hot concept right now within tech products, there's probably a lot of other things that could be, you know, drawn to. So uh, those are a few things that kind of come to mind quickly. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I had David Schwartz from Wix, public company, you know, tons of customers. And he talked about how, you know, they, he talks to customers almost every day or talk to at least one customer almost every day. So I don't think that's unusual for good tech companies to speak with customers. In fact, I would say that if you're a solid product manager, no matter the size of your company, you should be talking directly, you know, without a intermediary to customers on a regular basis, even if that's not quite every day. I totally agree. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily unusual, but sometimes like what we should do and then what ends up happening are just two different things, right? So it's, Absolutely. Just, it's, just, some, it's just a good reminder, I think. Absolutely. It's a great reminder. So you, you've talked to, you've heard speak, you've read materials from a lot of people doing you know, your job organizing this conference. Tell me some of the most interesting things you've heard from people like Bob or you, know, you had Ryan Singer, I think, who's also on the podcast are coming up at the Industry Europe conference, right? What, what interesting things have you heard from these people, these product management luminaries. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, you're, you're mentioning some of my favorites like Ryan Singer and Jason Freed, you know, the whole Basecamp crew. I think one of the things I love about those guys in particular is just that they are not afraid to put out ideas that are sometimes counter to what we all accept, right? So Jason Freed, for example, when we had him speak at industry this past year, he talked a lot about, you know, how at Basecamp, they don't use product roadmaps at all. They don't even, their approach work very uniquely. They don't do 
the traditional like sprints necessarily. They do six week periods of work, but what they get done in that six week period of work, it's like, it's done. It has to be done at that point. Like they're not going to do another six week period of work where they continue working on this thing again. So what it means is that the things that they choose to put time into and work on are things that have to get completed in that six week time period, or at least no more than that six week time period. And they don't really scope out work beyond those six weeks. That's something that to me, and I'm not saying that this should be the way for everybody, right? But it definitely kind of took me back. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, how could you not have a product roadmap? Like, certainly I've been in situations where I knew my CEO was going to press me on that roadmap. I know the board's going to press my CEO on the product roadmap. So it's something that has to get done. Then I was thinking about it for the context of what we're doing at Product Collective and Industry. And yeah, like in the very beginning, we, you know, we could roll out a year and a half plan and here's all the things that we want to accomplish in that year and a half. But then again, like after three months, the world changes, you know, what we want changes. And so I definitely see where Jason's going with that concept. Again, I'm not saying that no company should have a roadmap or anything like that, but I love when Basecamp and the folks at Basecamp put out things like that, that just get everybody thinking. You mentioned Ryan Singer, Ryan at our conference, he started to sort of seed this concept out and now Basecamp just sort of released their own thoughts on this too. And it's, it's the concept of a time period of work. When we work on a project, oftentimes people think of that as a linear process, right? There's a start and an end. And so if we're working on multiple projects at the same time, you know, we might show somebody else, all right, here's where all the projects are and here kind of, here we're at in the process. I'm, I'm 60% complete of this project right now. So you kind of see the line and it's, there's a dot sort of 60% of the way through. But what Ryan in particular, you know, started talking about at industry and, and now, you know, I know they publish it on signal versus noise, their blog, their base camp. It's not a linear process work, right? There, the thing is in the very beginning, usually there are all sorts of unknowns. There's a lot of unanswered questions that we have. And so in the very beginning of a project, there's just a lot more that needs to get done. And so what ends up happening is that it isn't a line. It's more like a bell curve. And that middle of the curve, sort of the top of the hill, if, if you will, you only get past that when you really answer all of those unknown questions, when all those unknowns sort of become known commodities for you. And then the work gets easier. You're sort of going downhill at that point. So again, I, I just, I like the way that they make people think with, you know, some of their thoughts. So for me, you know, when, when you mentioned like, well, gosh, you know, who out there? So many people out there that write amazing things that sort of, you know, they, they give speeches and talks and they're, and they're great. We learn from them, but there's pretty much not anything I've ever read from the folks at Basecamp that didn't make me think. So that, that's definitely what comes to mind for me. Well, we got more time. Let's hear some others. Well, all right. I'll tell you some others. So Ken Norton, Ken Norton's one of my favorite people to read essays from. And he gave a talk at industry. And then later he wrote an essay called, I think it was like, ants and aliens or something like that. And his whole, this is almost the counter of Jason Fried um, with the no roadmap thing. He says, hey, we shouldn't think about, you know, year roadmaps, two-year roadmaps. I, I shouldn't say he, he says, don't think about it. But what he challenges people to do is think about the world looks like 30 years from now, which that's totally the opposite of what Jason Fried was saying, right? It's like, hey, we're only going to think about the next, you know, what, what can we do in the, these next few weeks? What Ken Norton's saying is, when we're thinking about creating world-changing products, we should be thinking about what the world looks like in 30 years. And that is 
a crazy thing to even like comprehend, right? Like I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know what the world's going to look like in 30 years. And he's not suggesting that we all would know what the world looks like. But I think part of the point was if we do believe that the products that we're working on, you know, are meant to be sort of like society changing products, we have to think about how the world might be changing and, and account for that. So it's not about building a 30 year roadmap, but it is, it is accounting for how the world might look and how different it might be 10, 20, 30 years out from now versus um, what it looks like today. So Ken's another one that if, again, if you, I think it's just KenNorton.com, but pretty much anything he writes that he puts out there, I'm always learning something. Feed me more. <laughs> well, what if I, I should do a plant voice, like feed me. Yeah, I will say, you know, we do try to, we have a, on product collective, we have this area called tips and basically it's just like interesting articles that we've come across that we're always promoting. And I know there's a lot of stuff that Pendo's put out that we've definitely included in that tips list too, but the stuff that Ken Norton's put out, Jason Freed's put out, like a lot of the things are there too. So yeah, I would say of some of those interesting things that we come across, we'll be continuing to put them in that tip section and maybe other people could check that out. Cool. Sounds good. So talk to me about the future right now. I'm going to have you put on your fortune tellers hat <laughs> or, or pull out your crystal ball. What trends do you see in the next few years that will affect the craft of product management? Well, I think this is something that's already happening. So it's not something necessarily that hasn't happened yet, but I, I know we see it with industry in particular, like attendees of industry is, you know, I remember a couple years back, just roaming around and talking to attendees and just asking them like why they were there in the first place. And, you know, it's interesting when you, when you do start to introduce yourself to people and you see where they're from, you know, some of the companies are the classic like tech giant companies, Amazon's apples, you know, those groups. Right. But then you have some people that are with people like, or companies like home Depot or the federal reserve bank or banks, insurance companies. And when I came into contact with attendees from places like that, and I'm asking them like, Hey, you know, like what brought you here? Like why out of all the conferences you could have gone to, why here? And one of the things that we are starting to hear is, Oh, well, we're, we're sort of realizing that like we are a software company and we kind of all, I've been a software company for the last 10 years. So like these companies, and I'm saying that kind of tongue in cheek, but, but really like some of them are just realizing now that like, what they used to maybe call IT, you know, within their company, they're now treating it as, you know, they're hiring software developers. They are, you know, realizing like they have to be product minded. They're building products for their own use. You know, so in some of these cases, they're building products for their team members to use, even if like and end customers that like they're not selling these products necessarily to people, but they're creating products internally. So I think I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think we're going to see more and more companies that might have traditionally been seen, at least to the public, as maybe it's physical product companies, maybe it's service companies, service-oriented companies, consulting companies. They're going to start realizing that they are product companies. They are software companies. Software is important to them, you know, kind of no matter what kind of work that they're doing. And so what does this mean when companies start thinking of themselves this way? Well, it does mean that they're, you know, craving to learn more. It does mean that, you know, from a talent perspective, like they're going to want people on their team that have been involved with this for quite some time. And so I don't know, I'm curious if you've kind of seen the same thing at Pendemonium, but I know for us at industry, like we're starting to see a lot of our attendees sort of looking like that. I mean, I definitely think we're seeing a trend where more and more people realize the importance of software, if not as a core to their company, definitely an enabling factor. 
and therefore, you know, they're trying to incorporate best practices that a lot of the commercial software vendors might have had, you know, and push that, think about things more as product and therefore inherit the craft of product management and product managers to staff them. Yeah, I think, and I think we're just going to continue to see that become pretty common. I would agree with you. So tell me a little bit about, you know, Mike Belsito beyond the DJ. What's your favorite software product? Why is it your favorite? Sure. And I get, we should probably tell people why this DJ Mikey B. I remember I was going to speak we with should? Eric. I, or do we just leave it to everybody's? No, no, we can tell. We can tell. I remember, with, I don't know if it was a first St. Louis or Orange County, but Eric and I did a tandem talk on some of the research that Pendo and Product Collective did together. And Eric was pulling my Twitter handle to share with everybody, which is just very simply Belcito. So if any of you want to chat with me on Twitter, it's just at Belcito. But Eric found DJ Mikey B. So if you want to talk to DJ Mikey B on Twitter, it's not me, but it's, I think it is. Is it somebody else named Mike Belcito? I don't know. I don't know what his name is, but. I, I think it might be. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure, but it's at DJ Mikey B. If you want to follow him, I have I no idea of the quality of his tweets. So All of a sudden, DJ you. Mikey B is going to get so many new spikes followers. Spikes up, spikes up. He's now going to no be. no idea why. Yeah, yeah. He's going to blow up big now. <laughs> oh, man. All right. What did you just ask me before? Oh, my favorite product, right? Exactly, exactly. Favorite software product and why? Well, favorite have, product is Cleveland, right? No. I, that's definitely true. Cleveland is a, one of my favorite products for sure. But software product. And by the way, I will say when I started getting into, so I left a company that I was working for to go full-time in the industry right at the time where I started coming into contact with Pendo. So it very well could be Pendo because in all seriousness, when I first learned of Pendo, I'm like, I wish I had access to something like this when I was running product at the company that I was at. Yeah, but I don't think you can pick Pendo on the product I can't, podcast. I can't, well, I can't, especially because I didn't get a chance to. I sort of was late to the game and I was kind of mad because of that. But anyway, probably my favorite software product right now is Intercom. And part of it is, the folks behind Intercom are pretty awesome and it's hard to overlook that. So even though that's not the product, again, going back to everything as a product, like the whole experience, in my opinion, is very much a part of the product. And so when Des Trainer or Paul Adams, you know, when they're putting out this amazing content into their books or their, you know, inside Intercom, like to me, as a product person, like I'm putting that right alongside their tech product and like their tech product that we use, I bet I have a like an even more positive view of it because of all these other ancillary things. But the product itself, I mean, part of the reason why I love it so much is it just brings us closer to our customers. So the way we use it is differently than how I used to use it when I actually was running product for a tech company where we had tens of thousands of traditional users, you know, of an app. And in those cases, it's, it's definitely useful because you could, you can make sure that if somebody's used the app and they come a, they come into contact with a certain part of the app, they're going to see a different message versus somebody else that didn't see that aspect of the app. So that's pretty cool. For us at industry though, I mean, we kind of use it as a chat feature. And for me, like as somebody that works remote and my customers, I don't get to see them face-to-face until for basically two days of the year, you know, or at least a few days of the year, you know, we're actually at our physical conferences it is awesome to be able to have something that can make me feel a lot closer to them. So when somebody's on the website, they'll see my face pop up and say, Hey, I'm here to answer any questions you have. And some people might think like, 
oh, it's just a bot or, you know, oh, maybe this is just some sort of intern answering questions for them. But when you see my face on there, it actually is me. And when you get a message from me, it's actually me responding. And honestly, I love it because it just, like I said, just sort of brings me closer to our customers. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I, I know a lot of great use cases for using Intercom as kind of that that chat device, right? Either on the sales side or on the support side. And, you know, people should stop by and just say hi. Reach out to, uh, well, not DJ Mikey B, but the <laughs> Mike Belsito. <laughs> you should, because again, I love company. So even if you just came to our website and said, hey, I heard you on Product Love and I just wanted to say, hey, Mike, chances are, I mean, if it's definitely during the daytime, I will be answering you right away back and I will appreciate that. So, you know, we've talked about a good bit today. If you were to summarize, you know, your words of wisdom to impart to those in product leadership, you know, what would they be? I mean, at least this is sort of my approach and it served me well. It's just find ways to keep learning no matter how far you go and no matter kind of like how far the ladder you climb, you know, maybe you're, you start off as a product manager, but ultimately you end up as a chief product officer, or maybe you're running your own company obviously like you haven't reached the finish line and you haven't gotten to that point because there were things to know and now you know everything like there's the world's changing so much and you know whether it's learning about product management in general or whether it's just learning about customers interacting with your product or whatever it might be just I guess just staying curious and just always staying in a mindset that you don't know everything that there is to know and that there's so much more to learn and finding ways to just continue learning. That's how I try to, it's sort of my approach anyway. And I don't know, I feel like that's what's kept me grounded. And then it's also what like sort of keeps me curious. And I, I would say that would be my imparting words of wisdom, if anything. Awesome. So a final question for you, three words to describe yourself. All right. Three words to describe me. I would say helpful, at least to try to be curious I'm always curious, always trying to learn. And I would say Cleveland. And because to me, Cleveland is a description or it is a descriptor. I think Cleveland and hopefully other people think it's like, we're coming from behind. We're the underdogs. And I kind of like anything I'm doing in life. I kind of like being the underdog. I like coming from behind. I like, I like delighting people. When people come to Cleveland, they tend to be delighted. They're not expecting that delight, but that's what they end up getting. And so I'll say I am Cleveland. You are Cleveland. So the industry, the product conference, October, what, 1st through 3rd? Is that right? That's right. We got the workshops on the 1st and then the main conference on the 2nd and 3rd. And it's in Cleveland. So maybe if they come out the Sunday before, they could catch like a minor league football game, right? <laughs> hey, this year, things are changing. I don't know if you've watched Hard Knocks yet, but the tide is changing, Eric. I know you're a Steelers fan, but I know I couldn't I couldn't resist being a Steeler <laughs> fan, getting in at least one little job against the Browns. <laughs> I expected that of you. Eric. But no, seriously, Cleveland is a fun town. Great food. I recommend, you know, Greenhouse Tavern for people coming in or, oh, yeah. or Lola. You know, it's it's a good place. And you got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which if people haven't gone is, is definitely a fun place to visit. So those would be three of my places to check out in Cleveland. I and love if, it. if the Steelers are in town the Sunday before, though I doubt they are, you might want to see them at, at Brown Stadium and, and watch a good <laughs> game, right? Uh, it's a couple weeks before that, so that'll be long gone. But, but yes, <laughs> that would be that would be fun, though. Well, thank you, Mike. It was great having you on. Really enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you. This is a lot of fun, and yeah, I just I appreciate you having me on, Eric. Awesome. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, Eric. 
This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.